0: The great German theologian Karl Barth once said, What other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? What other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? What he's getting at there and what we've been talking about these last few weeks is that Advent is really a time for us to consider that that word, Advent, means uh, arrival, basically. It means the anticipation of an arrival. And what Advent is for us as followers of Jesus is the time where we look back to Jesus's first arrival in the human story, in his coming, um, in in the manger, and and all of the events, and even the things that we just read. But really, the, the major emphasis of advent for most of church history and and the modern church has lost this a little bit is really the anticipation of jesus's second coming something that the church just doesn't speak of as often and in saying that we both look back and look forward there's a tension that that introduces it means that we live in between we live in the in the time between as the wonderful theologian fleming rutledge whose book about advent I just could not more highly recommend. It's what I've been working through in this time. And um, so that time between is is just an interesting place for us to locate ourselves because it means that we live with this incredible awareness that the work of salvation has already been done, that it has been fully accomplished in Jesus by what he did in his death and resurrection. And yet... The full implementation of that victory, of that saving work, is something that we await both in our own lives and in the world around us. And so we live in this tension. We live aware that Jesus has come, praise God, hallelujah, and yet we look around, and my goodness, 2020, we look around and we see that things are still not as they ought to be. So we look outward and we acknowledge that, but we also look inward and realize that we are not who we are meant to be, that many of us have been following Jesus for some time, maybe years, maybe decades, and we see in ourselves um, things that continue to frustrate us, continue to sadden us. And in a year like 2020, it's now cliche to even walk through the difficulties that this year has introduced, but a simple swipe whichever way on your phone, get to your news, um, reminds us day in and day out that we live in the tension of the time between. And so what other time or season can and will the church ever have but that of Advent is an is an apt way of capturing just how appropriate the celebration of Advent is in a year like 2020. That 2020 As one preacher said, it is the year of Advent. It is a year where we feel the tension, where nothing has changed about the goodness and faithfulness of God, about the the effectiveness and, and the reality of what Jesus has done for us, and yet all around us is the awareness that he is not here yet. And so even on a day when we, along with churches all over the globe, light the joy candle, the question presents itself to us, which is, Well, where do we find joy or is joy even appropriate in the time between? And I would say that, um, and and as the church has said for thousands of years, joy is incredibly not just appropriate to this season, it is necessary as we live in the tension of the in-between. In fact, if you think about it, even if you're not super aware of the scriptures, you probably know that throughout the the birth stories of Jesus that the response that is constantly called for by the angels, say, who are announcing the coming of Jesus into the world is rejoice. Rejoice. It's why so many of the songs that the church has sung for for hundreds of years are songs of joy. Maybe the, some would argue, maybe the most famous Christmas song, Joy to the World, which we sang today, is not a naive Statement. It is. It is not Pollyannish. It is not closing our eyes and holding our breath. For there is reason for joy, and that's what I think we see, even as we consider this this naming of Jesus uh, that the angel Gabriel says to Mary he will be called Son of the Most High. So I want to look at why that announcement that that will be his name, that that will be what Jesus is known as, should be a source of joy for us as followers of Jesus. So if you'll turn with me, if if you're not already there, to Luke chapter 1, here's what it says. It says in the sixth month, and that's uh, referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's, pregnancy from the from the narrative before Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. In the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. There's only a couple of angels who get names in the scriptures, uh, most notably Gabriel and the angel Michael. And Gabriel in Jewish tradition was actually the The angel who God set up at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to to guard the Garden of Eden. That when Adam and Eve are cast out, God puts angels there because now the presence of God is actually a threat to humans' well-being in their fallen state. That the holiness of God is something that now needs to be guarded, not because God is... Uh, wants to hide, not because God is being petty and running away from them and hiding himself, but because he knows that now in their fallen state, in their sinfulness, the grandeur of his holiness is a threat to them. And so he puts these angels. It is stunning then to even just consider, as this story begins, that that this angel, um, who may or may not have been, it's more tradition than, than um, biblically rooted, is now sent to pursue this woman, Mary, in what at that time is very much kind of a backwater, nothing town in, uh, in a not particularly even significant region of Galilee, this little town called Nazareth. This is God's pursuit now of humanity, which is certainly not tradition, but uh, the clear teaching of scripture. That God, the God who needed to hide himself in his holiness, is actually the one who takes the first and the hundredth step toward us in bringing reconciliation and bringing healing to that broken relationship. And so the fact that one is sent as his representative uh, should be no shock to us if we know the character of this pursuing God. He sends her to, or he sends him, rather, the, the angel, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. In the virgin's name was Mary. So we do learn that the one that she is engaged to, that's betrothal, is of the house of David. So he has some status and significance, given that David was the great king of Israel, the one who kind of exemplified the best of, on a human level, what God's people had ever produced, even though he himself was profoundly fallen, that David came to be this symbol of uh, the peak of of Israel's reign and rule and of God's nearness of relationship to his people. And yet there was this anticipation that one was coming from that line who would out outdo David in every imaginable way. And yet that dream had very much died in the four or five hundred years between David's death and the telling of this story. And so the fact that Joseph is a part of the house of David, meaningful, but, but you know, not, not, Kind of a kind of a low simmering hope among the people at that time. All we get, though, notice is Mary's name. She by association has some stats, but all we're told about Mary, we're not told her background, all we are told is she's a virgin, she's betrothed, and she's in this backwater town in a backwater region called Galilee and Nazareth. That's all we're told about her. And an angel shows up to her out of nowhere, no background, no preparation for this, and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now this glances off of us, uh, especially those of us familiar with the Christmas story. You have to realize how insanely wild this is. She is just going about her business, right? There is nothing remarkable about her that the text betrays, that anything Beyond that betrays maybe some church traditions that some of us grew up in says some things about Mary. But the scripture, that there's nothing here to indicate that she's been prepared for this kind of arrival of the very representative of God. In some ways, the presence of God into her life. Greetings. And I just love that. It's like a what's up? What's good? What's going on? Hey, how are you? How are things going? I'm a representative of God. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. She responds very humanly. Verse 29 She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be. I just love that. It's like one of my favorite verses in, in the entire birth narratives. She tries to discern what kind of greeting that might be. Um, I think that this is an understatement. I think that this might even be borderline humorous. What? What's, basically this is, what is happening? This is the Bible's way of like, what is going on right now? What this makes me think of is, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever met like, not just a celebrity, but a celebrity who like really means something to you. I've, I've never, I'm just trying to think, I've never really had this experience. What it does make me think of is there was a Taylor Swift, which don't at me, don't judge me, whatever. We watched a Taylor Swift documentary like a year ago, and there's this part where people come in and meet her like after her concert, and it just gets weird. People are fainting, people are weeping, people are, there's this response that, that the human machine has to what we perceive to be greatness, especially when we're standing in its presence. And I just remember at one point, someone sort of like, like kind of crumbling. It was like from their head down, they just kind of crumbled down on the ground and were weeping at the feet of Taylor Swift. And that's a little like what's going on here, except, right, we're not talking Tay-Tay. We're talking the creator of the universe has sent word to this woman and here's the word greetings oh favored one so this is like this is like meeting taylor swift and being like oh my goodness and she knows your name and she's like you're my favorite you're you're totally my favorite again but it's not taylor swift it's the god of the universe and the god of the universe is saying oh favored one to this woman who's had no preparation for this interaction God love God, you're like, you're, you're the apple of God's. He is so crazy about you. Can you imagine this message, right? Like the best that I can do is like me meeting Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York city, big influence in my life. And him being like, he has no idea who I am and me meeting him and him being like, Oh, Scott, how are You're my favorite preacher, Scott. I would be like, what he'd be like? Yes, I've been watching your stuff. Like that's the that's the closest that I can get. And again, we're talking human level. Now you have the the creator of the galaxies showing up and saying to this woman, "You're God's fee. Fa- you're favored by Him." What kind of greeting might this be? We have to feel the enormous, overwhelming. What is happening right now? That this seemingly anonymous woman is experiencing. Angel says to her, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. And I love that <sighs> because it's, it's just so real. Instead of being like Mary was so holy that she handled in she took an angel's presence in stride. Like she was prepared for this. She understood the presence of God and was hallowed by it. No, no, no. She's terrified. And the angel's like, relax, relax, breathe. Like, let's, let's, you know, let's get back into our own bodies. Take it in a breath. Let's go slowly. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And there's no way that that's settling in quite to this point. But he repeats it, this favor that she has found with God. Now, he goes from just scaring her to an unbelievable upping of the ante of what he's here to actually tell her. And behold, verse 31. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary has no claim to royal worthy status at this point. She is lowly in every imaginable cultural socioeconomic way, and yet she has been chosen for, at a human level, maybe the most significant role in redemptive history, in God's story of that pursuit. She becomes... She becomes the main player in ushering in the saving work of God through the long-awaited Messiah, through the one who will come from the line of David. The low, simmering hope that exists among the people of God has now found its climactic and sudden and unexpected crescendo in the womb of this woman. Mary asks the obvious question. Mary says to the angel in verse 34, How will this be? All right. I'm a little overwhelmed, but there is an obvious massive issue that I don't know if you know. Well, I guess you know, right? You can imagine in her mind. She's going, wait, okay. This does seem to be God. This does seem to be an angel. Does he, did he come at the wrong time? Maybe he's outside of time, so or and she's going, okay, I, I know one thing, I'm still a virgin, and so what gives? How will this be, since I am a virgin? And as though things couldn't get crazier, the angel answered her. He could have just said, like, it's going to be a miracle. Instead, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And then he tells her, and just in case you were curious, you're not the only one going through miraculous conception. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in our old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was once called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. This language that Gabriel gives for how this will actually happen in Mary's womb is, is itself, uh, I don't even know what the right adjective is. It's insane. It's wild. It's wild. The, the only other time that we have language of the spirit overshadowing anything, this, this very specific language that's used here by the angel is when the very presence of God fills the temple. For instance, in, uh, Exodus 40 when when God's people come into um, are, are rescued from Egypt and then they're told to build this this temporary structure this tent of meeting a tabernacle that will eventually be the prototype for the temple when when it's all built the the presence of God uh, reflected as as like this giant cloud probably a, a kind of storm cloud this 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 eerie massive awe-inspiring thing comes and it rests upon that place to the point where it has this expulsive power that human beings can't even approach. Even Moses, who is the one who's specifically given permission to enter into that, he's incapable. It seems like he kind of tries to and he realizes, like, I, I can't mess with whatever that power is. The angel is telling her all of that grandeur, all of that awe-inspiring massiveness is going to somehow come into your very being. This is like saying, you know, the entire electrical grid of central New Jersey, that all of that power will come upon. The, the entirety of a hurricane and all of its winds will somehow be in in a cloud simply above your head and you will endure the full weight of it. This is not a especially for, for a, a good, uh, faithful Jewish woman who understood where some of this is coming from, almost certainly. This is not a joyful promise. This is not something that immediately for her goes, well, that'll be fun. This likely only increases her sense of, of just almost paralyzing awe in light of what she's being told. And yet nothing less than this is promised. And it says that that is precisely why this one will be called the Son of God because of God's unique participation in the bringing of this child into the world. In fact, the name that we're looking at today, this idea of Son of the Most High, this this word for God of Most High is, is part of, in Jewish tradition, especially of that time, the, the reluctance to say the name of God. And so Most High was one of the names. And in saying Most High, it is both this, this expression of honor of who God is, but it is also placing God above all all earthly authority, above the power of of the empire of that time, the power of Caesar, and above any power that could ever compete with it. That is the most high God. In fact, God is called most high throughout these birth narratives. I never really realized this until looking at these texts this week. Again and again, the angels refer to him as as the most high one. And almost certainly what's going on there is both this reverence for who God is, but also to say that if God, that if Yahweh is most high, then that means the powers that this one will, that, that his son will come up against are not most high it's a it's a to use a fancy word, it's a polemic against the powers of this world because Jesus is not beholden to any of those empires. He's not beholden to to any ruler, to any king. He is not beholden in our days, as we've talked a lot about to any political party. This is the son of the most high authority that there is, and by being his son, he therefore carries the authority of that most high one. That is what's being conceived. In the womb of this woman. Nothing will be impossible with God. That is the only way to summarize the enormity of the circumstances surrounding this announcement and surrounding this woman. Mary said, Behold, I am your servant, uh, or excuse me, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Mary bows herself to this enormous reality and this enormous responsibility. She says, I'm a servant. She understands who she is. Unlike so many of us who again and again put ourselves in the position of God and say, God, no, I know how best this thing works. She submits herself to his will and says, I can't imagine what this will require of me. I can't imagine how the full weight of the glory and goodness and holiness of God could come upon me and me not be destroyed. But all that I do know is that I am his servant. And therefore, if it's his will, then I submit to it. Let it be to me according to your word. So where is joy in this passage? Ultimately, here's here's what's incredible about all of this, more incredible than even the story itself is, do you know who Mary's experience here is most meant to echo? Who Mary's story is meant to remind us most of, as those who now follow Jesus and read these stories, kind of looking over our shoulders. It is, oh. Sorry, the little computer in my room is going off. It's listening to my sermon and responding. Um, It literally was responding to my question. I hope you were too. I hope you're as engaged as the Amazon Echo in this room. Do you know who it's meant to, to represent? I don't, I don't know if this, it's, it's you, it's me. In so many ways, Mary is the prototype of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus. Just about everything that is said about Mary in this passage are things that could just as easily be said of you and I. You see, we have nothing to bring to God. We are unworthy We have no status that would make him impressed with us. And yet he shows up in our lives. He pursues us. He brings his truth to bear, his goodness, his holiness to bear in our lives by no merit of our own. And you know how he does it? He does it by sending the full weight of his glory, the full weight of his perfection and righteousness upon us by his spirit. He makes us sons and daughters, he adopts us as his own. He calls us favored. He says, you're my favorite because you're my kid. You see, all that's going on here, uh, and not saying a minimal, but all that's going on here, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm saying that this is what's extraordinary. All that's going on with Mary is simply showing us what will go on for anyone who puts their faith in this one, who is the son of the most high. You see, the joy of, of the coming of the Son of the Most High is that the Son of the Most High is the one who is uniquely able to make every one of us sons and daughters. Because here's the question that we should ask, and it's the question that Mary is asking ultimately, is how can I be favored by God? How is that possible? How could it possibly be that the creator of the universe, the good and holy and perfect one, could possibly come into my life and find anything but that which is worthy of judgment? How could he find something worthy of his approval? And the answer, I don't know about you, but I know for me, it's nothing that I could possibly produce from within myself. It must be something that he brings with him. And sure enough, just like Mary, the most extraordinary thing about this is not Mary, It's the one being conceived in her womb, the one who will be the son of the most high. You see, that's a title that he bears before she can bear it. Do you see that? That it is through him because... The one who comes is the one who is worthy of these things, who is favored by God, who is uniquely the son of God, who is holy and perfect and acceptable to God, who goes to his death full of sin, your sin and my sin on our behalf, but is acceptable to God because of the righteousness in that act because he had no sin of his own. And therefore God is able to put on him the sin of of you and, this, and my own sin and accept Jesus's sacrifice because he is the favored one, because he is the good and righteous one. And this means that you and I can therefore go free and God can look at us and see the goodness and righteousness of the son of the most high in you and I and call us favored and allow the other time, that the Spirit of God is said to come upon a people, it's at Pentecost, it's after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit of God, do you know that that same cloud of God's presence, that cloud that the, the people of God were not able to approach in their brokenness is now something that if you're a follower of Jesus, part of what you believe is that that now dwells in you. That the very Spirit and presence of God is with you. And that you are called favored by him. Where is joy in a season like this? It is only available in Christ. It is not available, and let me get an amen, in circumstance. It is not available in your and my response to all of the hardship around us. It is only available in the fact that you and I have been made children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. And the reality of your life, follower of Jesus, is that when one day you meet your heavenly father. The first thing that he will say is not, Oh, one with whom I am so displeased. Oh, one with whom I've been frustrated my whole life. Oh, one who promised me you wouldn't do it. And then you did it again. He will say, oh, favored one. Oh, one that I have loved from the beginning. What this made me think of was, um, I have a grandmother who is dying um, I, my, my father's mom actually died about a month ago. And now my mother's mom is, is failing as well. And, and this grandmother um, is the one that I was particularly close with. And growing up, I was kind of, I was, I was her guy. Um, She made it very plain that I was her favorite grandchild. Thank you very much. If my sister ever hears this, sorry, Jen, I was her favorite. And um, we had these little things that were mine and my grandmother's things. And, I grew up in a family that tends to sleep in. Thankfully, uh, my wife has has owned that tradition with me. So we're sleeper-inners. But when I was a kid, as my kids are, I would get up early. And so my grandmother, and I know this isn't early for a lot of you, but I would get up right at 8 a.m. when I was a kid, about my my oldest son's age. And so my grandma took to calling me 8 o'clock Scott. And I would get up out of her house and I would walk down the stairs and I would hear her voice. And she would say, hey, is that 8 o'clock Scott? And, um, I'd say, yeah, grandma. And I would always hear her. The sound that I like most associate with my grandma is she would put entirely too much sugar in her coffee. And so she would have to stir it and stir it and stir it and stir it. And there were many, many mornings at her house. I would wake up to the noise of her stirring her coffee and I would walk down and I would, and I would so await that greeting from her and she'd say, Hey, is that my eight o'clock Scott? Sorry. And, um, and I'd say, yeah. And then I would go and sit. and she's the only person in the world who would call me. And I, to this day, I have no idea why. She called me Rooser Bruiser. And, um, and, and we would talk and we would normally have, I don't know, a half hour to 45 minutes just to ourselves. And it was just she and I, and I would, I would sense my favoredness in those minutes, in those hours together in a way that, um, and frankly, even thinking about this this week, I don't think it's just a metaphor. I think it's one of the primary ways that God has communicated to me, to my little soul, what it means to be favored, what it means to be home, what it means to be seen in the fullness of who you are and yet utterly and totally accepted. And what I've been thinking about in, in working through this passage this week is my hope for each of you is that you've experienced that in some in some way similar to that. I hope that you have not gone your entire life, never at least tasted a little bit of that. And maybe it was a, a parent, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was an aunt or uncle, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was somebody. But I hope that God has given you a little taste because here's the reality. As much as I love my grandmother, and even as she's suffered with dementia in her final years, there are these moments that we've had where I know that something breaks through because she'll she'll connect with me. She'll see me and she'll know it's me. And And the last time that we were with her, Oh my goodness, my wife and I just bawled afterwards. She looked at me and she said, you're special. I know for some reason you're special. And that, even that pales in comparison to what it will be to stand before your creator. The one who knows the very worst of you. The one who has been there in all of your moments of failure. And one day, all of that shame, all of that self-hatred that you've spoken over yourself, that I've spoken over myself, for all of that stuff, I believe will be so completely and totally undone when that one looks at you and says, oh, favored one, oh, one that I have loved fully as I loved my perfect and holy son. And right now, what we get are down payments on that. We get trailers of that. This is what the spirit of God is meant to be in our lives. And so often what keeps us from experiencing that here and now is that we simply do not avail ourselves of it. We lose sight of God and begin to think he's lost sight of us. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because so often it is precisely when we have lost sight of him that he is most pursuing us. That the same God who sent Gabriel to this woman in a backwater place to pursue her is pursuing you even now. This is the joy of the Advent season. Things are not as they should be. Your good Heavenly Father is more aware of that than anyone. And yet, His love for you is unquestioned if you are in Christ. Just want to read to you these promises from the book of Ephesians it says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose in us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters of his glorious grace through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, which we, he has blessed us in the beloved In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Do you hear the lavish love of your good and gracious heavenly father? Can you have the courage today to actually avail yourself in the here and now, in your brokenness, in your imperfection, in your apathy toward God through this season, to allow him to speak a word, a favor over you? I wish with all of my heart that today could be a day where we are together and would receive communion. It feels like the only right, appropriate response to this. But in light of our absence from being together, I do want to give you just a couple minutes to just consider. Where have you lost sight of God? Or in what way? Or or have you lost sight of God? And if you have, and my guess is we all have to some extent in the difficulty of these months of this season, would you just cry out to him and allow him to say through this scripture, go ahead and open to Ephesians 1 if you need to, or just be quiet in his presence and have the audacity to believe that what he said over Mary, he says over you, oh favored one, you've found favor in my sight, in my son. I just want to give you two minutes to do that and then I'll close us in prayer. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that um, you have exercised grace in my life, where grace is getting what we don't deserve. And Lord, we don't deserve um, to know that we are favored, Um, not because of any merit of our own, but simply because we have said with Mary, um, we're the servant of the Lord. So be it. (laughs) Lord, and so often, so be it, uh, is, yeah, I'll do the hard thing that you're asking me to do. But Lord, today, I just feel like um, the let it be to me according to your word, Lord, is more a hopeful prayer, a joyful prayer of, Lord, if you say that all these things are true of me in Ephesians 1, I just decide by faith to agree and say, let it be to me according to your word, that I have received your Holy Spirit, that I am holy and blameless in your presence that I am loved, that I am adopted, that I am called a son. And Lord, I pray that each one on this call would be able to do that. Lord, I imagine maybe there's some who have never put their faith in you on this call. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would say, um, let it be to me according to the word of Jesus in my life. Lord, if there's anyone who needs to make that choice, I pray that they would. That they would simply say, I'm a sinner and I can't run life on my own. I'm in need of a savior. And Lord, even as they say that, I pray that you respond in faith. Lord, I pray for each one on this call that does have the Spirit of God in them, Lord, that even as the Apostle Paul says, that that their spirit would bear witness, that the Spirit of God would bear witness deep within us that we are children of God, that that is true of us today. Lord, many of us have lost sight of you, but God, I'm so grateful that you never lose sight of us. God, may we be reminded of that. May we experience that afresh today.